Okay, has anyone read the agenda? What is open data? <laughs> what is open data? What's an agenda? What, no, what is closed data? Closed data is in Oracle. That's what it is. You throw it in there and you pay millions to never see it again. Episode 26 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Tonight we're going to be talking about open data and civic hacking. Uh, on our panel tonight we have Kenneth Kalmer. Good evening, everyone. Then once here. How's it? And we are joined tonight by Jason Norwood Young. Hi, guys. Jason, would you like to introduce yourself? Cool. So, as I said, I'm Jason Norwood Young. I'm kind of a, a tech for hire at the moment, but I come from a, a background of, of technology journalism, and then I decided I actually needed to make some money, so I went over to the dark side, did a bit of coding. I was technology manager at the Mail and Guardian for a couple of years. Now I'm down in Cape Town, and I've been involved with Code for South Africa for a few years, and what they do is uh, promote the use of data uh, in people's everyday lives. And there's a couple of things involved in that that we'll go into during the program. But it's, it's basically just uh, getting people to make good decisions by using data and uh, specifically open data. Cool. So when you say open data, could you define what you're talking about there? Cool. Uh, I've actually been thinking about how to, how to describe this today because it's it's tricky. Uh, what is open data? Uh, and it's, I think it's a bit like uh, open source software in a lot of ways, in that uh, one of the things that has to be is free as in free beer and free as in uh, Libra. So, uh, for instance, uh, you know, you, specifically government data, we, when we talk about open data, we're usually kind of talking about government data because that's stuff that you think should be free. Uh, we, as taxpayers, have already paid for it. So... Uh, you know, in, in our minds, there's a kind of a civic tech organization. We thought government data should be free. But when you start digging into it, you find that uh, it's both charged for uh, in many cases and many more cases, even when it is uh, free as in beer, it's not free as in Libra. It's uh, got some kind of restrictive licensing or copyright or restrictive use uh, terms of use attached to it. Um, so for us, we, we look at, uh, when we're kind of measuring whether, whether something is, is open data, it has to be free Libra, free uh, as in beer, and it also uh, needs to be uh, machine-readable, uh, which seems kind of obvious, but so many things aren't. We get a lot of government data that's a PDF or a spreadsheet. Well, it's a spreadsheet that gets printed out and scanned back in and put up as a PDF, you know, and suddenly you break that machine-readable kind of side of it. Um, or you get some obscure format that uh, is, is machine-readable by only one piece of software that you have to pay for, pay licensing for. So uh, that's really important for us. Uh, and then obviously it needs to actually be available. It has to be on a website. Um, and you often find that there, there are, um, for instance, uh, Treasury says that certain uh, financial reports have to be made available by uh, provinces or municipalities, and you'll find they go up and they have to be up for a year. And as that year expires, they disappear again, you know. So sometimes getting that historical data can be quite difficult. So all these things come up in, in the kind of uh, open data and what it is. So you refer quite a bit there to uh, open data sets from, that are government-sponsored. Uh, do you find many open data sets that are, uh, that are private-sponsored? Or I don't know what the term would be for that, but that are non-governmental? Yeah, they, I mean, there is some. It's quite tricky to find. Most of those guys keep their stuff closed because they see it as a competitive advantage, and it's a lot harder to get them to open stuff up. Um, what's interesting, actually, and maybe we should just mention this uh, as a kind of starting point, is that in our constitution, uh, um, open data is is guaranteed, or freedom of freedom to information. Uh, let me just find it. I think it's in section. Where is it? Section thirty-seven, I think. Sorry, section 32, my bad. Uh, it's, and basically, let me just read it quickly. It's everyone has the right of access to 
A, any information held by the state, and B, any information that is held by another person that is required for the exercise or protect, protection of rights. So the B part means you actually have a right to information that's held by private companies or individuals if it's uh, if you can say that, that it, it's, uh, it will help you exercise your protection of any of your other rights as enforced by the Constitution. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's interesting. That um, is eye-opener. Yeah, I have no idea about that uh, in the, at a constitutional level. But then, I, I think there was a case recently, or not so recently, where some guy's home loan was declined, and he took the bank to the court and said, look, you have to tell me everything you know about me, and he won, and they had to disclose like all of it under the law. So that's in line with that Promotion of Access to Information Act? But this that, sounds even before right. then. Yeah. yeah, this is, I mean, this is uh, because it's in the Constitution. I mean, this is kind of like from, from well before that. The, the promotion of, well, uh, it's the, the, yeah, the Promotion of Access to Information Act is drawn up from this constitutional uh, point, from this constitutional section. Um, and un- unfortunately, uh, one of the problems is that even though we have the Promotion of Access to Information Act, which basically is a way for us to compel government to give us information uh, as as they say we uh, deserve in the constitution actually getting the government to give you information is another story completely <laughs> bureaucracy right yeah and and sometimes uh protectionism protecting their their own butts and uh, mm-hmm. also there's a, a kind of a culture uh, in, in uh, amongst some some parts of government that any information they give out will be used against them you know <laughs> no matter what it is so um we uh, in the in the last elections um the um, we, the IEC actually released uh, all the informa- all the, the voting information live as an API, and that was uh, really good to kind of encourage other government government departments to start thinking about APIs because they realised that nobody got fired after they did that. You know, nothing bad happened when they released some information. Yeah, I remember seeing that during the election. You could uh, you had the Android and iOS apps that you could actually see. Really well, fairly close to live. Yeah, within an hour or so. Yeah, depending on. So I mean, there was a case of it was open, but it wasn't really open. You had to you had to apply for access to the API, and then some people were given uh, access to the MySQL databases on like on a replication scale. So they got the information long before the guys with the API got it. Well, not long before, but that's before. Um, so uh, some organizations could publish. The news before others you know so that ended up being a bit of an unfair playing field and obviously the public couldn't just access the api which is unfortunate but it was a step in the right direction and hopefully it will encourage them to do more of that so apart from election numbers you know counting votes what other kinds of data sets are available that we could easily get our hands on and where should we start looking to get to those okay one of the the big ones is, is the census data um and then obviously StatsSA releases a lot of kind of quarterly data and uh, household survey data or um, data on, on the economy, data on um, the, the CPI and that kind of thing, which is useful to look at. It can be uh, quite boring, but uh, it can be quite interesting too. Uh, we often find there's like stories in data, if even the boring stuff at first, you know, you kind of dig down and it gets more and more interesting. Um, we don't have like huge rich data sets like they do in the US where they've you know they've got hospitals that record every tiny little incident and that all goes into a central database but we do have some pretty good stuff um, there's obviously the, the police uh, crime stats that's always popular to look at um, matric results um, you know in, uh, education stuff and then there's a lot of stuff that's there but hard to get your hands on so um, for instance there's stuff like pregnancy and mortality at school reports um, and sometimes you can wrangle that out of government if you try really hard or there's a yeah, and, and that can be like fascinating they can be they, you have these weird outlier schools where like half the people die in a year you know <laughs> and that's a that potentially is either a mistake in the data or a really amazing story for a good journalist so, so is this data anonymized? Because a lot of it sounds very personal. Uh, generally, it is. Yeah. So all the stats say data is anonymized. Um, it, you know, anonymized is a is a tricky thing um, because stuff can be anonymized, but you can still identify the individuals. You know, um, if if you go down to a small enough detail. 
So even uh, the the census data, if you you know you, if you're looking at a very small area and then you uh, divide it by uh, you know who of speaking X language with, of X color in X area you know has this income, you quite often could tell within a, a first uh, degree of certainty what the income of was of a certain individual living in an area. Um, some data is completely not anonymized. Um, some stuff we think that is anonymized shouldn't be anonymized, such as uh, recently the uh, the IAC has started anonymizing the um, members of well, the, the the people who are running for political office by not giving their giving us their ID numbers. And we used to use ID numbers to do stuff like analyze their ages and that kind of thing, and their and their sex, but. Uh, we can't anymore, and, and we think that's a bad thing uh, because you also can't identify a specific individual and check their credit records or check that they have no uh, criminal record, etc. Not just names, which is quite useless. I was going to say the other thing is you can check with ID number companies and, and nepotism and all this kind of stuff. It would be great to surface. Yeah, in fact, companies is a, is a big kind of hot issue for us at the moment because the company's data in this country is not free at all. You have to pay quite a large amount of money to get hold of that. Um, so, you know, we, we believe that that should be uh, available. Who are the directors of the companies, you know? So if we take all this data that we can at least get our hands on, actually before that, so I understand you guys do a lot of this dirty work for us, well, code for SA at least. Yeah. Um, rolls it up, aggregates it, publishes it in other sources. So especially like you mentioned, like the financial reports, for instance, that disappear as quickly as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. Where do you guys publish that? Do you have like an open data portal that, that people could get their hands on the stuff? Yeah, we do. Uh, it's quite simply data.code4sa. It's the number four, sa.org. Uh, and then we uh, generally, if we, we scrape stuff, we put it there. We're also working with uh, numerous government departments on kind of on the on city levels and on provincial levels and national levels to try and encourage them to do open data portals. So we're working with the, the uh, Cape Town. The city of Cape Town is the first to have released its open data portal. Um, we're not working directly. Well, we are working with with Durban with some other guys with Code for Durban. Um, they're looking at, at uh, their policy at the moment to open up their data. They've got some really cool data sets. Uh, and Gauteng's um, uh, looking at it, and um, the Western Cape's also looking at it. So if we can get those guys and help them to, to open up their data sets, that's also a, a serious win for us. Um, so, yeah, if you go to the Cape Town webpage and find their, their open data portal, they've got some cool stuff. Um, and then there's also StatsSA is also useful to, to go look at. If you're looking for maps, the demarcations board, they've got uh, all the maps of, of South Africa down to quite a fine level and uh, in, in numerous formats and up to date. So that's cool. Um, what else? Oh, the IEC, you know, that's good. And then we've, we've got stuff that we've built like WAZIMAP, W-A-Z-I-M-A-P. Uh, WAZIMAP is a really cool tool for exploring census data because actually the StatsSA tool is quite shit. Um, it's you can get you can get it to run on your your Windows machine and it's only six DVDs big, um, or you can use the extremely slow Stats web, uh, website, or you can come to WiseMap where we've done all the the hard work and uh, explored the census data there. And it's really useful if you quickly need to look up an area or to compare some areas or if uh, you want to get a cool graph to just quickly drop into your your article online the wasimap site's really nice i played with it a bit after the last time i saw a talk you gave a josie up and it's so much fun just exploring clicking around our neighborhoods and and bigger areas and zooming in and out you guys did a great job with that one ah, thanks and i mean there's amazing stories in there like there's like weird areas like where it's like 98 percent male or uh all kinds of cool stuff so yeah, it's, it's it's fun to explore. So in order to build up something like WASIMAP, you're also going to need a whole lot of geospatial data uh, to be able to draw the maps and things like that. Are those generally open as well? Yeah, most of our geo data uh, is open. So that's from the demarcations board. Um, I'm not sure what level it goes up to. I think it goes up to what we consider a suburb, which is the uh, sub places level. 
Um, and yeah, you can download download the, the latest ones from the demarcations board. Also, we also have a geodata API that can actually you can say give me this area and it will automatically deliver you the the, the correct geospatial maps. Um, and then you know it gets quite fun when you start matching that up with other data. So if you kind of start mapping school districts or you start mapping um, you know rich and poor areas or um, different language areas, then you can get some really cool maps going. Yeah, because one of the things that always stands out when you're looking at data sets is the impact of um, nice visualizations. Uh, I always find the uh, being able to look at a map where you've got this geospatial data available. Uh, you can draw some really cool visualizations around that. I'm just looking at the Wazi map site here. We've, uh, this looks like it's using OpenStreetMap, uh, which, which would be another open data source, I guess. Yeah. Uh, although I guess that would be a private, uh, a privately held open data set. Yeah. Or more of a, but it is, bit, of a yeah. bit of a Wikipedia type model. Yeah, yeah, it's openly licensed. So yeah. Yeah. So being able to just click through these and have. Uh, with these data sets that let you build really nice visualizations that opens up the data quite nicely in a level that it, someone doesn't need to have a you know, a, stats, a degree in stats in order to understand what's going on. Yeah, look, none of us have degrees in stats. So <laughs> <laughs> like we just have no idea about stats. I mean, I certainly don't. Um, I, I do use our... our our, uh, our esteemed leader is probably the most clued up on, on that stuff, but even he doesn't have a degree in stats, I don't think. Um, although his wife is a statistician, so I think that's why he, he knows a lot. You can just ask her. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's like the really hardcore data crunching stuff, and then there's the there's quite a lot, of, kind of, I suppose, that goes into to open data. There's the working with pure data, kind of a spreadsheet level, there's the, the cleaning of data, which is its own thing. Um, and it's actually often most of the work because the data sets come in amazingly badly formatted or with incredible mistakes. Uh, and you have to be able to spot those and clean that up. And then there's the, the um, what we call interviewing the data. We actually kind of start looking at the data and finding interesting stories in it. Um, and we kind of treat it like you're interviewing a person, you know, and you've got to kind of prod it and poke it and come from different directions and that kind of thing. Uh, and that's where even then uh, visualizations kind of start coming in because I, I think visualizations are just a way of looking at data. So you just want to look at data from as many different angles as possible. And that's what visualizations that you do. Um, so once you've looked at it from numerous angles, then some cool stories start to emerge. You know, some outliers, often a cool story. Sometimes the, the fact that, you know, there's the, the main thing is the, the story, you know, where most people are. Um, you got to look at the difference between stuff like uh, stuff between um, uh, uh, what's the word mean and uh, median. So, uh, for instance, if the, if you're looking at salaries and the mean salary and the median salary differ greatly, then you start you know, then you know that there's kind of some kind of uh, wealth imbalance in in whatever data set you're looking at. Oh, they, I think I went a bit off off center there. <laughs> no, that's great. That's good. I wanted to ask, like, is there for working with this stuff? Is there any standard tools that you guys use, or do you just hack it all together as you go and just repurpose previous scripts for the next batch of data coming in? Yeah, some stuff is is quite hacky, but I mean, there's there's some stuff that's that we kind of rely on quite a lot um, in terms of. Uh, well, I'll take it through some of my tools. Uh, so. Python seems to be the most popular language amongst the open data crowd, but I'm not a Python guy. But I mean, I, I can cobble together some Python if I need to. Um, but uh, there's, uh, uh, yeah, so, so Python is popular. Uh, Adi uses Python a lot. He uses what's it called, uh, look it up, Python workbook or something. Um, so oh, IPython, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, which he likes because he can document his process as well as as experiment with with graphs and charts as he goes. You know, and by the time you get to the the end, you've already got a whole story kind of written, which is really cool. Um, I uh, I do use Python a bit for, for especially for scraping, um, and for scraping you've got LXML, uh, the LXML library, which uh, and uh, just basically 
there's a way of going through HTML. Um, it's an HTML parser, an XML parser. And then there's also a beautiful soup, which beautiful soup is probably a bit easier if you're uh, coming from, you know, if, if you're not super knowledgeable about XML. Uh, it's, it's kind of easy to find what you're looking for in a document. Uh, LXML is considered a lot faster and, and kind of technically more superior. Um, then, uh, yeah, and we usually use uh, a library called requests to actually just grab the web pages. And you usually want to do that at speed. But, I mean, there are quite a few options. I mean, sometimes you end up using like a, a virtual browser just about to, to um, uh, grab the web pages. Uh, what's quite useful as well is some of the, the browser, te- well, the, the integration test tools that you've got nowadays for testing browser integration. You can actually use a lot of those for scraping as well. Um, Another library I've used on uh, for JavaScript, uh, I've, I've used it with Node, is something called Cheerio, uh, which is pretty cool. And that's, that lets you look at it's kind of a, an implementation of jQuery. Um, so then you can go through the elements on the page using more of a kind of jQuery format, which I find a lot easier. Um, yeah, so that's kind of like the scraping thing. But oh, and another thing I want to mention for scraping, which is actually uh, the the... The poor man scraper is you can actually use Google Spreadsheets. If you've got a, a table on a web page that you want to scrape, there's a, a function called import HTML. And then you say import HTML table and then the, the number of the table on the page. So if it's the third table and number three, and it just pops your stuff straight into a Google Spreadsheet. That's magic. Yeah, that's this actually really awesome. <laughs> um, I remember... A few years ago, Google was building a tool. I think it was called Google Refine. That was supposed yeah. to be pretty good for working with, um, for cleaning up data sets. Yes. Does, is that still in use? Yes, uh, we use it a lot. So it's actually now called Open Refine. Google um, let it go or uh, kind of gave us the open source world. And unfortunately, not really, no, no real development has happened on it since that happened. But it's still an amazing tool. So we use it uh, primarily for cleaning data. So. I would say if you're doing something in a spreadsheet that's either becoming a really complex function or you're repeating something over and over again, then you actually what you probably should be using is OpenRefine. What it does is, is it performs the same operation on a lot of rows, um, and it's got a lot of like very clever stuff. So it's, it does um, uh, like spell checking kind of stuff for you, and it finds similar words and uh, uh, says, should this word actually be that word, you know? Um, it finds outliers in numbers or in dates. And, and so if you've got, for instance, the, the school data that has all South African schools on it, there's one that's always in the Northern Hemisphere because they forgot to make one of the, the numbers negative, you know. And so <laughs> Google Refine will pick that up really quickly. It just says this guy is like a total outlier. He's just on his own. So there's something wrong with him, you know. Um, so we use Google, Google Refine a lot, uh, and it's really, really powerful um, for, for doing transformations, for finding those, those weird outliers and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so that's the cleaning of the data. And then you've got the, uh, what else? So yeah, we've got the, the kind of interrogation of the data. We usually just use spreadsheets and um, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, pivot tables. So I don't know if you guys have used pivot tables at all. Back in Velocity. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, once you get your head around pivot tables, it's like, it's just basically add up these rows or give me the sum or, you know, it's this kind of stuff you would, you could do, I suppose, in a normal spreadsheets row with a formula, but it's, you can't quite do it. And then uh, you turn to pivot tables and then you, you can start really asking the data difficult questions and then getting answers out of it. Um, Sometimes just eyeballing the data also will give you that, you know, just reading through stuff. It's, it's really useful to do that group by thing in the pivots and then be able to sort of break it down like by province or by town, whatever the, the sort of indexes are in your data. I find that really useful. Yeah, definitely. Um, some, what some guys do is they will query the, the data in a MySQL database and just use the aggregate functions. Uh, especially if that is what the format is that if the, the data already is in a MySQL format, they'll actually just do it natively in MySQL or sorry in SQL. It doesn't really matter if it's MySQL or not. If it's in CSV or something, then we, we you know obviously 
spreadsheets just makes most, more sense. Um, and then I like to kind of start graphing quite early on because that'll, like I say, just ask weird questions of the data and see what pops up and, uh, you know, applying different types of, of graphs, like doing log kind of, um, doing, you know, put, putting a log on it and seeing if it, if anything like pops out or just doing a straight um line graph or bar graph and seeing if there are any real outliers sometimes you can look at a number and it doesn't look that big but then when you graph it you're like oh okay that's actually a cool number um yeah and then finally it gets presentation um so you've got a bunch of options there from uh just the spreadsheet still you can do it like google spreadsheets is fine for if you just want a pie graph or a bar graph and the cool thing is if you publish those graphs um when you update the data, then they'll update live on whatever site you're showing them on. So that's quite a cool way of, of like a real cheap CMS almost. Um, then, the, yeah, there's a few others. Uh, there are a few kind of infographic makers, which are, are fun to use and to get something out quickly. Uh, I use one called Infogram, but there are a bunch of them. Uh, now there's also a lot of really cool mapping things like uh, uh, Mapbox and those kinds of guys that make amazing mapping software. And it's really easy to do really cool maps nowadays. And that's been a huge jump forward. Probably in the last year, that's probably where most of the the, the good work's been going. Um, we also use the thing called Data Wrapper, which is another thing to make really cool graphs and, and really nice graphs. Yeah. Uh, what else did I want to mention? Mm, document cloud document cloud is if you're putting up kind of pdfs um document clouds are a really cool tool and it's by the guys i don't think you guys know bootstrap and underscore sorry uh, backbone Back, backbone and underscore yeah yeah jeremy ashkenaz yeah so that, that was actually originally developed for as part of the libraries they're building for for um, uh, document cloud so which is a, an open data platform um, guys like the Mail and Guardian use it, but also the New York Times and Al Jazeera, and they, they put up documents. Um, so it basically will take a PDF. It um, converts it to text, and then it runs it through um, an entity extractor that just tries to find all the, the names and the company names and all that kind of stuff. And then what you can do is you can go in and say, so, say you've got 30,000 pages, you can say, I'm just looking for this guy. Show me all the times that this guy appears in these 30,000 pages. Um, so, yeah, that was very useful. That's very useful for, for managing, especially when you do a pie request and you get these massive dumps back from, from the government, um, such as the Encundler documents. Um, they put that all into Document Cloud because it's just impossible to, to analyze them in any other way. Yeah, most of document, if not all of Document Cloud's components are open source. I think it's like part of the funding from the Knight Foundation. Yeah. It's like an obligation. So there's a lot of cool stuff there. Yeah. Way more than underscore and yeah. just backbone. Yeah, they're very Ruby centric as well, I think. So there's a lot yes. of Ruby stuff. Yes. And yeah, they're very cool. Yeah, there's some great JavaScript stuff there as well, uh, apart from the backbone and underscore stuff. Yeah. Well, I've just done a huge backbone project and it was actually really awesome. So that Licky, which is the our Africans new music streaming service, is the, the website is built on on, on Backbone. And um, okay, so th- those are pretty cool. So we've got all those tools. Yeah. What do you think is like a good spot if like one of our listeners wants to jump in and get their hands on some data? Like, what kind of website or visualization or exploration tool or something hasn't been built yet that you want to see? Sure. I mean, there's so much, as much as there is data. I suppose it depends on what's, what interests you. Um, what we do is we have pretty regular, we used to call them hackathons, but now we call them data quests because hackathon has a bit of like the wrong uh, kind of baggage that it comes with. Uh, and we don't really need people to build something that they can show off or sell or something. We just want them to have fun with the data and find cool stories. So those are useful to come to. And sometimes they're kind of themed like along science lines or um, you know, explore city data and that kind of thing. But apart from that, it's pretty open. And those are pretty cool to come to because people don't have to be comp sci guys to do this kind of stuff. And they don't have to be uh, all that. And they don't have to be graphic designers. But if you put a graphic designer and a journalist, a storyteller and a, a, comp, a computer kind of guy, together they can quite often do some really cool stuff so 
those are cool to come to if you're looking to kind of start to get into this kind of thing. Um, we usually advertise those on our website and we've got a, a newsletter called Naked Data that goes out every Friday. Um, that's the one thing you can do. Uh, another thing you can do is just explore the data sets we have um, at data.codeforsa.org. If anything is of interest to you, just download it. It's free. There's actually tools on the site to really start visualizing it so you don't have to download it before you kind of interrogate it. But, you know, if you want to really get into it, that's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of guys who just kind of do this stuff at night and in their spare time and, and do some really amazing stuff. Is there any projects like do you want to show off that you guys have done or helped with, like WasiMap? I know you've done a few others. Yeah, WasiMap is cool. Um, there's, I think there's a, a, a. Sorry, I'm going blank here. There was the crimes that thing that you guys did for the, was for the Maryland Guardian. You could see your suburb. Uh, we did a, a kind of know your hood thing, uh, but we haven't updated that in a little while, to be honest. There's also we also another thing that needs updating was something called protest map that we did, which is protest-map.codeforsa.org, which is just a looking at all the protests in the country, and you can uh, look at whether they're peaceful or violent and what type of protests they are. Um, we did a, a cool hospitals thing, which is, I think it's at hospitals.codeforsa.org, which is all the hospitals rated by uh, the government in terms of their cleanliness and then, you know, the, the number of doctors they have and, you know, the chance, basically the chances of walking out alive. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, there's also the medicine price index, uh, NPR, um, which basically is all the, the uh exit prices for medicines so the government's um define or the government actually sets the the kind of um, maximum price you can charge for each type of medicine and we also list all the alternative uh uh, uh, medicines you call not alternative um what you call it Generics. Generics, yes. Thanks. Uh for each medicine. So if you're at your doctor and you prescribe something, you can quickly uh pop on there, check if your your medicine uh, check if that you're being overcharged for medicine and check if you if it's generic, that'll be cheaper. Um we did a big project called um uh on minimum wages, which was uh which did very well. Um it's one just won a big journalism award and that is at hang on a sec well i call it living i think it's living way okay i'll look that up in a bit but uh yeah so basically with that project what we did is we started off doing a huge research project with a um with uh osman Siddiqui, who, uh, who is actually came in from from boston and uh, uh did a, a huge amount of research on how much it costs to be a domestic worker in South Africa, and he did stuff like he he took uh, he took taxis from from the the various um, uh, well he took taxis all around Cape Town to work out the cost of taxis. He looked at the cost of food, um, what it would take to eat, uh, the cost of education for a domestic worker, um, how many. Uh, dependence the average domestic worker has, you know, interviewed domestic workers and that kind of thing. And he took all that information and he basically said, this is how much it costs to live as a domestic worker. And because um, a lot of people kind of try to work out what to pay a domestic worker based on what their friends pay or what the minimum wage is, but there's very little understanding of actual costs um, that a domestic worker has just to, for instance, get to work every morning. So, if, if they're paying a uh, thousand rand a month to get to work and you're paying them three thousand rand that's you know a third of their salary gone already so we want to do to kind of approach domestic worker salaries from another side and say what would be a fair wage based on their living costs so that they basically can afford to survive um, and that turned into a big journalism project uh, with what uh, uh, about our journalist Kim Harrisburg who then interviewed, uh, uh, did video interviews, and we put together a really cool package that was on News24, and it just kind of rolled from there. So, yeah, that's the kind of case where we were trying to use data to create a, a change in the way in people's behavior. And I think in a large part we did. We got good feedback that a lot of people have uh, changed the what they pay the domestic workers based on the data. Um, 
There's also open bylaws, which is uh, all, uh, Cape Town and Johannesburg's bylaws, and hopefully we'll get to some more cities soon. Um, because whilst most of our laws are available online, our national laws, none of our bylaws are. So stuff like how many dogs and cats are you allowed to have at home? Or uh, what, are the, what are you allowed to do at the local park? Are you allowed to plant flowers or not? You know, Or uh, do a bit of guerrilla gardening? So uh, open bylaws kind of answers a lot of those questions. So yeah, that's a few of our projects. <laughs> it's quite an impressive list there. But I must say it's it's great. Like to me at least this frames civic hacking. Like these this last list we went through is all a bunch of stuff that's useful and can really make people's lives better one way or another. Help them make informed decisions, whether it's the wages or the bylaws or like not getting ripped off for medicine. Because it's so easy to just, you know, throw the stuff at the medical aid. But there's a lot of people that simply just can't afford good medicine. And yeah, I mean, wow, <laughs> that's really good. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, in fact, we like a lot of doctors use our, our NPR, uh, the Medicine Prices app. Uh, apparently, you know, they just check it before they they prescribe anything because you know they don't know offhand every single medicine. So we've had feedback from doctors that it's extremely useful for them. I just love that you're able to take these data sets that are freely available, but correlate them in a way that that is useful. Um, I mean. As you say, doctors using them, people using them in their line of work and changing people's behavior just by having access to information that would otherwise just be stored in a JSON or XML or HTML or PDF somewhere on the internet. Yeah, I think that's a major problem. And also as comp sci guys, we often just think that, well, even if like it's on the internet, we've done our job, you know, um, when actually... You know, the people who need the information don't necessarily even have an internet connection, you know, or, or so it's, they certainly don't live online searching for stuff. Um, we did a project recently with Black Sash where you know, we had a lot of discussion about how, what we wanted to get, you know, what, what format we wanted the, the output to be. And we ended up doing posters because it was something that they could then take to the communities that they were doing work in and kind of put a poster down on the table and everyone could gather around and we had really cool cuffs, um, very easy to read infographics and they could use that as a conversation starter and, and kind of conversation point. So, um, and, and to kind of guide the conversation. So the, the output there was a, was like totally paper-based, you know, which is not something that you normally think of. We just think, oh, we can make a cool interactive graph, but, uh, but that's not, not always the best best visualization. I was going to ask, like, it can't always just end up in D3 somewhere. So that's a, <laughs> yeah. a great example of even offline. <laughs> yeah, uh, sometimes it's, it's yeah, paper-based. Is, paper is super powerful um, and doesn't need batteries. Uh, and yeah, it's it's... It's a really nice, like the poster specifically, that was, that was a good example, and we're kind of pushing that. Um, but there's some other cool stuff that, that you can do, like radio, um, TV. There's a lot of talk about how, how you do data visualization on radio. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's guys like NPR and, and, the, and uh, some, I think Washington Post did a really cool thing with the... It might not have been Washington Post, but anyway, they did a somebody did a really cool thing with the, the Winter Olympics, where they um, used pings to show the, the times between the different uh, between the kind of first and, and last place. So uh, and and all of the finishers say the, the downhill slalom, and you'd get like ping 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 ping, ping and it'd be like amazing the the short amount of time between the winner and the loser. You know, uh, it's like like a millisecond and just using audio to show that was like a really cool way of visualizing that. Yeah. Cause that would relate it straight back into real time. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if you do a graph, you don't get that sense of, of, of um, time. Or even just looking at the numbers. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Cool. So I think from my side, at least nearly one of my last questions is what kind of, What's the bigger community space that the civic hacking movement um, operates in? Like I say, a lot of people helping each other out across the country, across the globe, working together. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a big African community, and we kind of all work together and have, have an idea of what everyone's doing. Um, through a weird accident, we all ended up being called Code for something 
but that was we actually not all related. <laughs> it just was a uh, uh, yeah. So there's code for Africa and code for South Africa and code for Cape Town, and all of these are completely different organizations. But weirdly enough, we all kind of are friends, although we have no kind of shared infrastructure or anything. Um, and there's, there's also a global code for movement that we're uh, involved with. There's code for America and a few other code fours, uh, code for Australia. But yeah, we're not we're not all related organizationally, but we all are kind of work in open data, and and so we all kind of keep tabs on what everyone's doing and try to work together where it makes sense, or at least not step on each other's toes too much. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, in terms of that kind of broader thing there's uh there's quite a few conferences and because it's a tight community most people know each other in the community um you know and although it's quite big especially in in europe and it's it's a very strong powerful movement um so you know you've got thousands and thousands of people in europe south america has also got a very very strong specifically data journalism um kind of community They've got uh, Hacks Hackers, uh, their Hacks Hackers chapter, which puts developers together with journalists. Uh, they've got you know tens of thousands of people uh, involved in that. So huge, huge numbers. Um, and then in, in North America, it's, it's mostly we work a lot with the, the kind of data journalists and, and the, the news organizations. That's, those are the guys who employ most of, the, most of the developers and data journalists. So we also kind of keep in contact with them. The Guardian does a lot of stuff. Uh, New York Times does quite a bit. Um, Washington Post. Uh, uh, a lot of the Chicago newspapers are, are very big into data journalism. So we, we chat to them. And then in, in South America, you know, there's, uh, um, there's a few uh, really good data journalists that we, we keep in contact with. And then also uh, guys come out to South Africa and usually just pay us a visit or spend a bit of time with us working with us. So, yeah, we all kind of keep in contact. And how do we fare against them? <laughs> like, are we up there? No, I don't think we're up there. Um Certainly in terms of, of open data from our government, we're not up there. The, the um, open data index was just released and we've dropped 18 points in the open data index, I think to around 50-something, 50 52 or something position in the world. Um, yeah, we're, we're definitely not up there in, uh, from a government perspective. Uh, from a data journalism perspective, um, it's a bit tricky to say because Journalism in South Africa is in, in full crisis mode at the moment. So a lot of people are, are uh, they're all reticent to invest in anything. Uh, that being said, there is some really good data journalism coming out. Um, every now and again, you'll see a, a very impressive piece. Um, but data journalism, I mean, is anything, I, I define data journalism as any journalism where data is your primary source as opposed to a, somebody interviewed or a person. So if you see it from that perspective, you know, data journalism is most most financial journalism is data journalism already. So, you know, there is a bit of a tradition of that or uh, election reporting or that kind of thing. Um, so it's it's a matter of kind of using the new tools that are available and, and uh, to do cool visualizations or to get a better understanding of your story. And that's what we're trying to encourage. Um, oh, but we have a, a data journalism school starting up and that'll be running uh, over the next few months. And we've got quite a few journalists, uh, experienced journalists, who are coming from various publications to to uh, do a three month internship with us. So that should certainly help boost data journalism school, uh, data journalism uh, within South Africa. Well, yeah, that sounds pretty good. That's more than I hope to get. <laughs> and then cool. you guys also have released some stuff on GitHub. Isn't it some loose tools and stuff that people can go plot through for inspiration? Yeah, look, everything we release, everything we do is we put up on GitHub. Everything we do is open source. So every single big to small project is there uh, on the Code for SA GitHub repository. Um, for instance, so we did the, the um, parliamentary monitoring group website. That's all up on GitHub, but uh, you know all their, their kind of confidential data isn't necessarily there. But there is an API uh, that, that we insisted that they uh, make open, which has you can get most of the most of the parliamentary information, so speeches and um, 
I mean, there's tons. There's, there's. I think they've got, like, they've they've got. I can't remember how much audio they have, but thousands of hours of audio. Every single uh, parliamentary meeting they record, and we've got the audio of all of that, and the written transcripts, and all the documents that were handed out in Parliament for for every portfolio committee, etc. So all of that stuff is up. Um, what else is on our GitHub page? Uh, where there's a maps mapping stuff um, and, and, and collection of maps. There's yeah, every every project we do. Yeah, we can leave that as a exercise for the listeners to go <laughs> yeah. dig through there. I wouldn't even know what is up there. There's just so much. It's crazy. But then is that aggregated by um, by government, or do you have to go through and kind of aggregate all of that data yourselves after it's published by them? Yeah, so we, I mean, we, we generally try to nab data from government. Uh, some stuff is, uh, that is, is that they release freely and some stuff that we have to drag out of them. Um, then, yeah, it's, and, and we try to kind of put it all, at least all the interesting stuff we try to put on our, our uh, open data portal. Um, but yeah, there's there's so much more that is potentially there. That, you know, we're just kind of scratching the surface. Cool. So I've got a slightly different question I want to just go into a bit here. When we spoke briefly about um, data sets like OpenStreetMap that are primarily crowdsourced, um, in general, how common are they? Uh, are there any good kind of crowdsourced data sets that you could point to that people could start looking at and start using? Yeah, look, I mean, crowdsourcing is a tricky one because, you know, it's, it's building up a community. I mean, OpenStreetMaps has worked really hard to get where it is today. Um, in South Africa, there's, I wouldn't say there's a lot of crowdsourced data. Um, most of the kind of data that's produced that isn't produced by gov- government is produced by civic society. So, and a lot of that is kind of still paper-based or, or locked in paper or it's held by them and, and seen as some kind of competitive advantage, even though they're, they're civic organizations. Um, so in South Africa, there's, in terms of collecting data, I haven't seen any good kind of community-driven stuff. Um, I mean, there's probably a good there's probably a good opportunity for somebody to really do something cool. Um, but you know, the, like like those kinds of community-driven you know, those community projects, you've got to really drive. You've got to really push for a long time to to get enough people involved and to get it get make it exciting. You know, and have such broad appeal that people would just willingly throw their time into it. Yeah, one one actually that somebody recently did. I can't remember who organized it, but it was the identifying the national key points. Um, so they basically just put up a spreadsheet and uh, said look through the news, any old news things that you can find. And, and if you, if they mention a national key point, put it in this document. Uh, because back then they, you know, they, they said the list of national key points was a secret. Um, and so that actually worked really well. Uh, they got a huge list uh, of national key points because at the time it was interesting and people were, were it was in the news and, and people were really interested in it. But in general, you'll you'll find that uh, the the crowdsource data sets are probably going to be relatively incomplete uh, for any for any serious purpose, I guess. I mean, apart from things like well, OpenStreetMap, where it's where you've had some serious efforts gone into it over years now. Yeah, and I mean, it has to be of, of something that's really of interest to people. So uh, in the US, NPR did a big project on uh, crowdsourcing information about all their public parks and like whether things were in good condition or whether they were uh, wheelchair accessible and that kind of thing. And people really went for that, you know, that, because it was of interest to their community, you know, so they, they had the nail on the head and they had a big community to start off with. So if you get... 1% of a very large community involved, then, you know, you might be able to get something. Um, but also, I mean, you also got to remember that incomplete data is not necessarily bad data, as long as you know that it's incomplete. You know, you can still get a lot of cool information from incomplete data. I mean, our, our census data is in, incomplete, but it's really cool. <laughs> okay. Cool. Cool. Len, Kenneth, have you got anything else you want to throw at Jason before we wrap this up? Oh, wow. There's just so much to to look forward to digging into. Thanks, Jason. Um, nothing else from our side. 
Also good. This was fantastic. Excellent. Guys? Cool. Um, yeah, shall we start talking about some picks? Uh, Kenny, have you got anything you want to pick this week? I hate my brain's a bit flat now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, okay, actually, the one is uh, on the weekend we went to a place called Bounds. Uh, it's about the Waterfall Lifestyle Estate in Midrand slash Kailami. I don't know, places in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's an indoor trampoline area. It's like just hundreds of trampolines of different shapes, sizes, scales, bounciness that you can go and um, hopefully not hurt yourself, but have a lot of fun. Uh, that was fantastic. And um, also we watched a, a great movie, The Revenant, a new movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and a bunch of other people. And it's fantastic, stupidly intense, um, very long, nearly three hours, but an absolutely fantastic movie. That would be mine. Oh, then? Um, based off last week's podcast, I guess maybe in some weird way relevant to tonight, there's a port of Wolfenstein 3D to go, which is pretty cool. Uh, so I'm just getting my head into that. I'll put the link into the show notes, but it's uh, super interesting if you want to get into gameplay, I guess. That sounds so cool. You've got to go take a look at that. It's like those open source dooms and quake engines. Got to go play with that sometime. Uh, Jason, have you got any picks you want to add in? Uh, I mean, you've you've given us so many things to look at already. Oh, I so feel like I've been on the spot. Don't feel pressured. Uh, oh, don't feel pressured. But your Wolfenstein, Wolfenstein thing made me think of a thing that was on Zeta Tech this week, which was uh, Wolfenstein in 1D. I thought that was genius. It was like a, a 1D Wolfenstein. It's just a line, and then you've got to walk along the line. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, from my end, uh, Pocket App. If you find yourself reading blog articles or having a long, a lot of tabs open of things that you want to read, uh, to throw them off into Pocket. And then going along with that, please remember to go and actually read Pocket. Don't just leave stuff to go and die there. It's a bit, bit of an Instapaper type app. Uh, works really nicely. And it's got mobile apps as well with uh, on Android and iOS. So yeah, that's that's it from me. <laughs> May I add to that? Yeah, a lighter version that actually is that refine.com service, which is absolutely fantastic, and it ties into Pocket. They have a great little integration and a loop, yes. so you can quickly get the articles off into Pocket and read offline. And then I think if you favorite them, they bubble back up into Refine, and it's a bit more visible because you can share it with your Twitter network. So I have a bunch of invites for that. If if anybody wants, just ping me on Twitter. I'll yeah. dish them out freely. I think I've also got some invites left. So yeah, ping, ping one of us. Cool. Uh, yeah, that's it then. Thanks for listening to episode 26 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Uh, we'll catch you again next week. Awesome. Go, go read us on iTunes. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks very much, guys. Thanks a lot. Cool. Cheers. 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 Ciao.